Hi, I'm Graham. Welcome to episode three of The Good Oil, Conversations with New Zealand Painters. In this episode, I return to my conversation with Graham Sydney. If you haven't heard part one of this interview, I suggest you go to episode two of The Good Oil to listen to that first. In this episode, you'll hear Graham talk about how honesty and accuracy have little to do with his landscape painting, how key it is for him to trust his own instincts, contrasted with his battles with his confidence and his imposter syndrome, despite being 50 years into a hugely successful practice. He talks about how deeply he loves where he lives, while not pulling any punches speaking about the changing landscape at the hands of industry and environmental mismanagement, the importance of finding the right home and guardian for each painting, and what painting he'd like to steal if he thought he could get away with it. Apologies in advance for the brief rain delay in this episode. We pick up the conversation with Graham talking about what his work is and isn't. Well, let's let's start talking about the you know the work in, in some detail. So, you know, they 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 look like highly representational landscapes when you when you first look at your work. Um, but that's a that's a sleight of hand, really, isn't it? Because they're they're not that. No, they're not like they're not um, truthful. Honesty and accuracy are nothing to do with it. Um, realism is a misnomer. These are painted lies, obviously, and you rearrange the world inside the frame to suit what you want the painting to be and what you want to emphasize and what you want to eliminate. Um, the illusion is of, of some form of real world, but they've never been honest and they've never been uh, anything to do with accuracy. So you don't consider them landscape paintings? Yeah, they are. But they're, they're romanticised, um, rearranged reality, um, as most paintings are, except where, very sadly these days, so many painters are just wedded to the delivery of a photograph. Um, but I've never been that. Um, I've always been highly selective about what the painting needs and what you use and what you discard. So how much of a, a sense of narrative you know, do you have with the work before you start? You know, that rearranging that you're talking about of elements. I never think of it as narrative. I, I don't regard paintings in any sense as being storytellers. But I'm aware that what, what you decide to include has to have the capacity for interpretation, has to have the capacity for meaning. And I trust the fact that out of all of the things that you can paint and you can use and that you can select to make use of, instinct has dictated that I've decided to use these things. Now, I never, ever try to analyse that instinct or to question it. I never have. I've always simply trusted that instinct and let others wonder why. I don't wonder why. I just trust it and let it happen, believing as I do in, in my deepest heart that 
It means something to me, even if I don't know what it is. You often work to try to find out, but very seldom do you come to a conclusion. What you're doing is trusting the fascination, that the magnetism, the um, capacity for an image to linger where you forget so many other images. Why do you fixate and keep returning to something in particular that you've noticed, whereas other things don't have that hold on you? And I simply trust that. It's very, very simple. How long do those subjects take to, to appear then? Oh, sometimes years. Um, sometimes it's instantaneous. I know exactly when I've seen something. That's, I love that. I'm going to use that somehow. Other times ideas linger in some back cupboard of your brain for years. But you don't ever quite forget them. And the fact that they've stayed means that you have to give them the dignity of some appearance in some form. You should look into it. What is it that's making that happen? Why can't you forget it? There must be something there. Let's find out. And it might work and it might not. And, and those subjects are both landscape and that, that human presence as well. Because, mm. you know, looking at, looking at your work, there the seems to be that contrast between permanence of land and, and almost temporary nature of human endeavour. Mm. And also the figure paintings, which I love. Certainly going to talk about portraiture later. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I see already you're talking there in ways that I don't think. I, I know that that's what's going on, that, you know, the permanence and the eternal, eternal life of landscape and the transitory nature of, of humans' feeble gestures on the surface of the earth and all sorts of things. But I don't think like that. I know it's there, but that's not what entertains me. I'm, I'm really nothing more than visual. So there's human-made subjects. Mm. Is it simply that they, th those human-made subjects, is it simply that they are relics, or so many of them are relics in the central Otago landscape? It's dangerous to go down that romanticised path, and I try not to. Um, it's too cheap, it's too easy and too sentimental. But I think that notion of the remnants of past lives is really quite significant to me. Uh, for example, I've always been fascinated by the gold period in Otago's history. In fact, I wrote a book about it called Promised Land, which I loved writing. Um, it was really the story of the discovery of Central, which was driven by gold. Um, so I'm alert to the quite recent ghostly presence of, of the past life aspect. And there are symbols of it. And because Central Otago is so dry, these things don't rot away. They, they tend to remain. 
but I'm also awfully fearful of the sentimentality of that of that approach and I don't want that at all I much prefer the sort of harshness and rawness and and the hard elements the bony skeletal things rather than anything too sentimental but I don't want to ever give the impression that I think these things out. I don't. I simply have learned and, and knew quickly, uh, quite early on, that what you've got to do is trust the mysterious instinctive responses and the things that you can't forget and the things you don't want to forget. So the paintings that I've done are generally about the things that I've loved and don't want to forget. Um, why they matter, I don't know. That's one of the glorious dimensions of, of being a painter and making paintings. The question, because you give these, these mysteries a permanent form, they are permanent they're there forever, and people can wonder if they want to, and so can I. But I seldom come to a solution on them. I just think I needed to do that, I wanted to do that, so I did. So instinctual without much, without any deep theory behind. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Disappointing, eh? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were, we were talking earlier before we, before we started recording about the nature of um, you know the soft power mm. of of paintings, mm. um, but that's not something that again because you're just delivering instinctual work, never any attention for for work to have any you know soft power or political impact. No, no, I don't. I don't really love or admire politicised art. Um, I never have. It's never appealed to me. I see it as being very transitory and I see it in the same way as I as I read and enjoy cartoons and political cartoons and so on they're pertinent to their time but but I want my art to be longer than that longer and deeper um, I've never had the capacity for doing it or the interest to to drive me in that direction I think I did one painting once that was slightly overtly political and I think it was one of the worst ones I've ever done and it happens to be in the Auckland Art Gallery now, no doubt um, gathering moss in the cellar as it probably should Which work? It was called Cross um, it was part of my hatred for the decision that, that had been made to dam the Clutha River at Clyde and drown the Upper Clutha and the Cromwell, Cromwell Gorge. And I was part of the Clutha Rescue Movement that opposed that unsuccessfully, unfortunately. And I did one painting of the Upper Clutha Valley with a great big railway cross, you know, cr railway crossing sign from the back, which was just a big negative, although it was white. 
um, but I thought it was a pretty awful painting, frankly. Un unsurprisingly, the Auckland Art Gallery bought it, and you know, I'm sort of quite ashamed of it, really. I wish they had something good. <laughs> I think about some of the painting that's done in the you know, 19th century New Zealand, so John, John Gully doing what was you know, really reportage painting of mm. here is what the New Zealand landscape looks like and reporting you know, back to England. Yeah. Do you see you know, your work as, as reportage? No, not at all. No. I, I know paintings have that, um, have the ability to be used in that way, but it, it's really important to understand that my whole attitude and my working life has been incredibly um, selfishly focused. I, I simply don't ever allow thoughts of an audience or of an impact to ever intrude on what I'm wanting to do privately. I work for me. You know, the, this is the, the sort of volcanic ego, really, which you try to suppress socially, but is absolutely vital when it comes to working. I don't care what anyone else thinks about what I do. And I never have. That's the great gift that I've been given, thanks to that early start with um, the support of Peter Webb and Bob Ballard and Barrington Cramp, his money. I've never had to consider the, the audience, ever. And I haven't. And I'm in the habit now of being really very disdainful of the audience because I see it as an intrusion onto what, on, on what I want to do. And everything I've made over nearly 50 years of full-time work now has been um, entirely self-centred. But I suppose there's an irony here where you are creating a, albeit, you know, held in public collections or private collections, mm. an, an archive over 50 years of painting Central Otago, um, very much an archive of reporting what the landscape here looks like. Yeah, but not reporting by me. That's, that's, that's an accidental, um, it's a byproduct. It was never part of the intention. And while I know it, is part of the function that art can perform. It's not one that I embrace um, or am motivated by. Never has been. Although you've also been, you know, referenced the Clutha Dam, mm -hmm. have been work, you know, I've worked in conservation work, uh, especially in this in this region. Yeah. Um, there, there has to be because of your proximity to, to subject, that, uh, having having spent so much time painting it, mm. that must motivate, give extra motivation to that conservation work. Only in that I see New Zealand as a remarkable and condensed continent's range of landscapes distinctive regional landscapes packed into a, into a pocket handkerchief size country 
and that I believe firmly and absolutely that we should be doing everything we can to preserve those distinctive regions and that any influence which annihilates that distinction or undermines it or, or diminishes it and homogenizes it and turns these distinctive regions into beginning to look like each other, I oppose with all my heart. And Central Otago is one of the most easily discerned distinctive regions. It is particularly unique and peculiarly so in the way it looks. And I am watching it being homogenized by a number of elements which I loathe. For example, defying nature's intentions for this region by irrigating Central's natural aridity into a lush, chemically induced and enhanced irrigated greenery. I hate that. And I hate the fact that it's become um, a motivating principle across the nation. Instead of it farming appropriately, I don't blame individual farmers. This is, this is a, a sort of generalized opposition I have. I, I like farmers a lot, most of them. Um, and I don't blame them because they are under pressure for in, uh, to intensify and to earn more and earn more with complete disregard for what nature intended. And I just see that as the sort of arrogance of, of mankind trying to dictate and superimpose his will on nature. I don't like that. Mm. I think New Zealand is a far more interesting and attractive place and naturally beautiful place when we identify the, the characteristics of, re, of our regions in their distinctive, unique separation and do everything we can to preserve that separation and that uniqueness and, in fact, enhance it, which is now why I, I am engaged um, in... in the campaign against wilding pines, because nothing annihilates distinction and separateness and and unique beauty, regional distinction. Nothing annihilates it more that more readily and more rapidly than an exotic imported evergreen pine tree, mm. and they spread like stink explosively, and it's happening all around me, and I I worry that for my grandchildren, for example, the central Otago that they may inherit, thanks to our cowardly laziness and lack of investment and lack of recognition, is going to look like anywhere else in New Zealand, mm. covered in plantation forestry, for example, or irrigated into, into a sort of Waikato greenery. Mm. I just think that's wrong. I don't like it. Mm. But I don't paint it. I don't go out and paint... Um, 
pivot irrigators angrily. And I sure as hell don't paint the green pastures. Yeah. So in 2003 and 2006, time spent in Antarctica, can you talk us through how that came about and the experience of, of working in that environment? And I say working because you didn't, didn't manage to paint down there, of course. You ended up um, using a, a camera. Mm. Um, I was aware of the artists on ice um, opportunities that Antarctica New Zealand provided, but I, I have a sort of um, philosophical opposition to anything competitive in the art world. I never go in for competitions and I refuse to be a judge, for example, although I get asked quite a lot. Um, and you had to apply to Antarctica New Zealand to, and be selected to go down. And I refuse to do that. I, I won't do that. I don't want anyone saying yes or no to, to my worth. And the head of Antarctic New Zealand, Lou Sampson at the time, was a friend and he was very keen for me to go down. So he bypassed the Artists on Ice program and just invited me to go down, which was very different. Mm. And I went extremely excitedly and happily in 2003. And I went down with all my paints, innocently, and um, the moment I sort of stepped out of the Hercules onto the ice at, at McMurdo, I realised what a fool I was, because within about two minutes you realise there's no way in the world you can have your hands out, outside of gloves. This was in October, not, not January when it's actually a lot milder. But um, I went much earlier on both occasions. And you just can't have your hands out. So I couldn't have held a pencil, let alone a brush. And So did you have a camera with you? I did uh, by, by to, chance. Right. Yeah, I hadn't intended to use it. Ah. But, but I wound up instantly realising that I was going to have to resort to the camera and nothing but. So you kept your camera inside your jacket where it could stay warm and um, pulled it out for the sort of 10 seconds that, that you needed and then shoved it straight back. So I, I didn't do a drawing. Uh, well, I may have pretended to do one because there was a camera team with me. But um, but those photographs end up very much looking like Graham Sydney paintings. Oh, I hope so. Mm, I hope. That's what, that's the, the challenge. I'm using this word a lot, but that's the challenge of photography. How do you make it your own? What, what has to happen when everybody has the same technical capacity in their hands? The camera has it now built in. It has a brain of its own. It makes all the decisions. You only have to put it on a setting. Whereas I grew up, you know, in my high school, the only art in my high school was a camera club. And we had to learn all about aperture and depth of field and everything else. And then we developed our own in the darkroom. So I've, I've always loved that aspect of, of photography. But everybody now is capable and competent because the cameras are. But you then have to, the far greater uh, problem for photographers is how to put a, a personal signature onto an image that anyone could make. 
because the technicalities are, are solved for you by and large. So you're, the, the painting that you've already done leading into, you know, 30 years of painting leading into that trip, 40 years of painting leading into that trip, mm. uh, obviously informed that, at least from a composition point of view. Well, I, I have an eye. I have my own eye. And I know what I want to happen inside the frame. And it's just um, subconscious, really. So did that has that trip then informed painting... Uh, after the fact, like, so yeah, I think it did have a big impact um, because they're not all together. Central Otago, Antarctica. Mm. Perhaps this is going to sound a little ridiculous, but they're not all together different environments, especially in winter. What I learned down there and and loved a great deal was the the absences. It's Antarctica is a is a continent of absence absences. Um, you're left with a very minimal range of tones and colour and texture. Very minimal compared... You know, when you're flying back from Antarctica and you look out the window of the plane, you can't believe how colourful it is and how amazingly rich the textural opportunities are out the window. Down there, it's all ice, water snow, rock. End of story. Apart from what mankind plops onto, onto this uh, sort of very, very elemental um, environment, there's no, there's no real colour range. And I, I loved the fact, I love realising how beautiful it could be with so little. So little on offer. Um, the shades of grey and the shades of white were so subtle, but I just totally fell in love with them. And brought them back into... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because after that I started doing fog paintings, for example, which are also paintings about absence and about mystery and about what you can't see but you suspect. Um, and almost nothing to do with colour. And I, I've, I've really loved those, and I still do feel that the minimal quality of the environment down there still sits with me very powerfully when I'm trying to find things that I might, uh, I might do next. Um, that was hugely valuable. Hmm. Yeah, let's talk about your portrait painting. Mm. Because probably better known, I suppose, by, by New Zealand as you know a landscape painter, yeah. but extraordinary portrait painter as well. Uh, so yeah, where does portrait painting fit into the practice? Um, it's not in a large element in in what I've done. Um, the figure paintings, the nudes, are much more important to me. But I've done a few portraits, which I've really enjoyed because they are like like the, the life studies and the nudes, they are a fabulous and ancient tradition. And, you know, I'm a very conservative soul. I love the fact that I'm working within a tradition. And the challenge is what can you add to that tradition of your own time and your own nature, your own personality? When a tradition is as deep and um, 
magnificent as, for example, the, the human figure in, in art, not in New Zealand art, incidentally. I mean, it's notably absent from New Zealand art. But when, when the tradition is so wonderful and has been addressed by so many brilliant hands in, in different epochs and everything else, each of them reflecting in the work, how can you add something of your own to a tradition like that? So what do you think you're adding? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I love that notion. I love that challenge. That something... When all you're doing is... When you're using the same notion of a human figure doing something within the world of a frame, mm. how can you make it both yours and unlike anyone else's and of your own time? Now, you, I don't think, once again, I don't think you can do that deliberately. I think you have to simply trust your instinct and see what comes out. But you also have to be aware of the tradition. The more you know, the better equipped you're going to be for recognising when something is there of yours and not derivative of someone else. So it, it's knowledge dependent and experience dependent. But I, I love that challenge and I love doing working with the female figure for example because I think there's nothing more beautiful in the world um, than a sort of uh, yes yes I do prefer the idealized form rather than the everyday um, possibly less perfect figure but that notion of the perfect beauty has always appealed to me I've, I've always loved it it's Politically, it's very unacceptable now, especially when you're an old white male. But well, that touches on how, like, uh, how personal lots of portrait subjects have been to you know to you. So I think yeah. I think, for example, that that Robin Judkins um, portrait, mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, painted um, you know nudes are, are often of current partner Fiona. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So is and, it and easier, or, uh, easier or harder to paint to paint people that are so close to you as portraits? No, that's all I can do. I can't paint a stranger. I have, I have no interest in painting a stranger. Um, you paint what you love, and whether they're part of your life or not is is a slightly separate matter, but. It has to, for me, it has to be more than, than just anyone. Um, and there has to be an emotional connection. Um, they have to matter to me, put it that way. Rather than saying, I paint what I always love, um, that's, that's potentially dangerous territory. But certainly they have to matter a lot. And I can't work with anyone that doesn't matter. So without that intimacy, without that relationship, mm. the, the painting's just not there. Yeah, and especially nowadays when, when for example, painting, um, you know, the, here's me at, at this age, 74, nearly 75, um, wanting to paint some uh, very beautiful young woman, the, the potential... It's, it's a loaded, explosive political territory now, much to my regret, because the relationship that has to be present for you to be able to work together, it is a partnership, and they, it has to be one of mutual respect, and it has to be one of mutual admiration. The, the model needs, has to want to be in the paintings, 
and I have to want to do something to make my feelings about the beauty that's in front of me permanent and memorable and mine. And that's a, that transcends, and, and bulldozers aside, all matters of sort of superficial politics and gender politics and all that as far as I'm concerned. It really infuriates me when paintings get reinterpreted this way. Um, because for me, there could be nothing more respectful and dignified and dignifying than to spend weeks of my life trying to show the world, and mostly myself, of course, trying to make something permanently beautiful and inescapably beautiful. And to say within the painting, as I, as I hope my paintings do say, especially the figure paintings, um, look, this is the most natural thing in the world, and isn't it amazing mm. in its beauty? And yet, you know, you get slings and arrows from all directions if you do that, if you're, if you're um, silly enough to go down that path. But I, I refuse to be cowed by it, and I still think some of my figure paintings in particular are some of the best things I've ever done. And I, I have more to do, and I want to do them, and I will. You've also painted yourself as a, as a subject, so self-portrait. You are a patient sitter? <laughs> no. Uh, that, I mean, that's a, that's a nightmare, having to look at myself in the mirror. But it's another tradition. What can you do that makes it yours? And it's never been done before. That's the, I've done very few. I did one when I turned 50. I might do another one when I'm 75, sort of celebrating the fact that I've lasted. But um, it's, it's going to be a frightening, <laughs> frightening task. It's getting harder to look in the mirror. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> John, John Parker, J.S. Parker, once did a self-portrait, which he called this thing in the mirror. I know exactly what he feels. Mm. Mm. Well, that, that begs the question around... Uh, paint like innovating as a as a painter. So, mm. how do you keep seeing new work? How do you keep seeing new paintings? Whether it be portraits, landscapes, um, it's it's just built in. I I never. It's it's not a problem for me knowing what to do. It's a problem which one to begin to to explore. I've I've always had a head full of ideas that I and studies and notes and everything like that. Oh, here comes the rain. Here is the rain. Will that be a problem sound-wise? Uh, we're about to find out. Yeah. It might, it might be. It looks like... It'll, it'll be brief. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. We, mm. might, we might just uh, let's see if it passes. Should we break and have a cup, another cuppa? Yeah, sounds great. Okay. Yeah. So portraits, uh, there's still plenty of portrait work you'd like to do? Yeah, I'm increasingly interested in, in doing some more. I haven't done a portrait for a long time. Um, I've got a tempera self-portrait drawn out. Uh, I've got another two or three studies of fee that I'd love to do, 
that are less portraits than, than figure works, really. Um, there's, there's another model that I would love to do more paintings of in the, on the figure front, simply because she's such a classical form. But portraits, um, I, I'm missing doing them, really. I, I, they are difficult to do well, and it, once again, it's that really uh, preoccupying, inescapable challenge of how, what can you bring to it that is going to be like no one else's and that's going to be appropriate for the, for the subject. So it's, it combines all the hard things, really. Whereas, for example, in landscape and, um, or just in landscape, nothing else, you can get away with anything because people don't know landscape the way, the way I do. They've never looked at it half as long as I have. But people know the figure and they know faces and they know, you know, for example, a figure doesn't work in a painting unless there is a clear implication or something persuasively skeletal holding the figure together. Otherwise, it's just a sort of amorphous piece of jelly and flesh. And a face is no use if it's only a face without a personality mm. um, that can be discerned. So there's these additional difficulties, whereas a landscape, you can, a landscape is easy really, because you can play any game you like, and it doesn't matter. As long as you play it persuasively, people will accept it and believe in it and say they know it. it you know, I, I find it very funny sometimes when people swear they know exactly where I did a, a particular painting, and they have no idea that it might be the amalgamation of, of three or four different um, places or different items um, sort of extracted from different spots. But mm. no, no, they know exactly where it is. They've, they've sort of stood there. Well, that's, that's probably a good point to, to start talking about process. So portrait or landscape, where does, where does a painting start? Landscapes start with a double take. Something that makes your head swivel or that you find yourself um, uncontrollably looking back at and thinking, shit, there's something, there's something there, what is it? Look at that. Um, landscapes tend to start in that sort of simplistic way, but that happens a lot because, you know, the nature of my life is, is, um, is one of acute looking. I'm, I'm nothing if not a, a, a very good observer. And that happens so often, you then have to allow time to sort of filter out the ones that don't matter much, that aren't going to be very meaningful to you for whatever reason. So sometimes I might make a very hasty note of something that's, that's caused me to stop and look twice. Um, just so I don't forget. But then if it, if it doesn't go away over weeks or months, then you know that it's worth going back. 
and seeing if you can find something there. What was it? Um, is there is there a reason why I can't forget this? That that's what that's how the landscape paintings tend to grow. Huge numbers of these ideas disappear. Uh, but are you then sketching you know, in the landscape, like so, working out rough sketches yep. before returning them to the studio to work them up. Um, rough sketches. Very quick ideas to, to cement up an idea or to cement, cement up something you've noticed might be on anything. Could be on an envelope, whatever's in the car. Um, then the, the going back often involves much more careful drawing and photographs if I haven't got time to finish the drawings. Um, I use far fewer photographs in, in the last decade or two than I used to early on when I didn't have time to finish drawings. I'd take a lot of photos of all the things that I thought I might need to, to be able to dip into. Um, and you know, you just, you might photograph 10 details, but only use one of them, but at least you've got it. Um, but nowadays I don't do that. I tend to make stuff up a lot more. Mm. Um, I take far fewer photographs and I use them far less. I'm, I'm much more inventive than I used to be. Um, but when it comes to the figure and portraits, careful drawing is really the only way. Um, because because draw, drawing sounds like it's been a really you know, foundational element of, of all your work. Yeah, yeah that's who I am really. Mm. I'm a draftsman at heart. Mm. Um, drawing is a way of slowing down and looking carefully and deciding what's necessary, what, what makes this work? What, what are the clues that make this, for example, soft part of a body look soft and a hard part look hard? Why does it look like that? And when you're forced to slow down and look that closely, it's a lovely rehearsal for when it comes to the easy part, which is painting. Because you've been there and you've worked out in your head what the clues are that make it work. Hmm. And you also have plenty of time to consider what to use and what to not bother with. Um, what matters here and what doesn't matter here. So it sounds like like you're a, a slow painter now. Like you've, oh, you've God, mentioned, yeah. you mm. mentioned you now paint six works a year. Mm -hmm. So there are the you know the pros cons of being that slow. More pros than cons, I assume. Well, that's just my nature. Mm. Um, in my dreams, I would be a, an impressionist who who would um, you know do five a day because I love playing with paint. But I've never been able to do it. Um, I've tried to paint like that, and it just doesn't feel right. I, I can't do that. Mm. Whereas I get quite a thrill from being a slow, careful observer, um, and then trying to turn it into something permanent to, to sort of reflect why I why I love something or why I respect it or feel it must be made more memorable and make it permanent. 
Um, that's my unfortunate nature that it's taken me a very long time to get used to, incidentally. It, you know, only in the last, only, you know, well past age 50 have I sort of accepted the fact that this is what I'm like and I'd better bloody get used to it and make the most of it. Um, I wanted very much to be different, but I couldn't. It wouldn't come out. Hmm. And, you know, slow learner. If you're painting six paintings a year, you're working on uh, multiple paintings at once, you, will you start a painting and finish it before moving on to the next one? I tend to have at least two going, one drawn out um, that I can pick up when something else is being done and, and needs to dry. Uh, I like having more than one just to keep me entertained. I mean, part of the challenge uh, in when you're a full-time painter is that every day, whereas people like you go to work, pre-COVID you did anyway, into an office full of other people and other people's complexities and delights and, and um, anxieties and the humour they can bring, the interest that they can add to your life. Painters have to learn how to be alone. And you therefore, number one, have to find yourself interesting. Unless you, unless you are fascinated by your own motivations and strangeness, then you're going to be in trouble. Because... Unlike art school, where you're surrounded by others all day and you may enjoy the stimulus of others, when you cut out alone and you go into your work workspace, you shut the door on everyone else and you have to be comfortable being alone and find it fascinating. So for me, it's a matter of constantly trying to find ways to keep myself stimulated and engaged and difficult because it's the difficult things that you love to solve. And what are they? Well, it's whatever might happen inside the frame. Almost invariably, you start off a painting full of hope and, and um, optimism that this is going to be a breeze, this one, because I, <laughs> you know, surely after this amount of time I must be able to do it by now and then with by the end of the first day I'm I'm in deep gloom <laughs> thinking I can't possibly be this fucking hopeless you know surely I'm better than this this has gone wrong that's gone wrong I didn't imagine this was going to happen and you know you you plunge into these depths and think that you're useless and why didn't you stay being a teacher regardless of being 50 years into what yep. is an incredibly successful career yeah it happens every time hmm. and from then on it's a salvage job it, you know if anything i'm i'm a very good salvage operator um you have to learn to stick with it and make it work make something work get something out of this. The idea must have been good enough to get me started, so therefore I've got to see it through to see what that idea might have been. But if you chicken out and abandon, that's just weakness. Hmm. 
and you have to have that sort of stubborn determination to make something of it. So I'm constantly looking for ways to keep myself um, entertained and engaged and challenged. Um, you don't do it by constantly playing with the easy parts. You do it by almost subconsciously setting up problems that you then have to solve. Yeah. So it's so you know beyond perseverance. What what uh, how do you how do you approach that problem solving? There's a, there's a curious satisfaction in in that salvage job, in making something out of what was a disaster. And that becomes a private contentment because no one else knows where it's been and how wretched you've felt about it. Um, but the, making something work and disguising all of that stressful, problematic, um, mistaken paths that you've been down on the way through its creation, there's a very lovely sense of accomplishment in that, which is mine alone. You don't want anyone else to know about it or see it. That's just me. Mm. And that just, by the end, you've gone from thinking I'm such a, you know, I'm, I, I was, I've always been an amateur and everything else has just been, you know, imposter syndrome. This has just been a pretense. I'm no good at all. Um, I never was. I never will be. You've gone from that through to thinking, well, maybe, maybe I can do something. All in a day. No, that takes weeks. Mm. Mm. It's very seldom happens in a day. Mm. But you, you learn to make use of your mistakes, make use of the accidents, make use of the unexpected, and turn them to advantage. Like earlier, earlier when we were talking, you talked about uh, working your father's hours, your father's accounting hours, nine to five. Mm. So how do you approach that studio time? You're still working nine to five? Not now. Not now. I used to. Mm. I used to take the kids to school, um, you know, and arrive at the studio at quarter to nine and then pick them up after school at half past three or something like that. Um, and then I'd always go back at night once they were asleep. I see you were quite comfortable working at light and at night in artificial light. Always have been. Yeah, very happy. Mm. It's quiet time. No interruptions. Um, I've always done that. Really enjoy that. You can get more done in two or three hours from 10 o'clock to 1 at night than you can through an interrupted afternoon at work. You exist now outside the dealer ecosystem, mm. which means you have a you know direct relationship with um, you know with some with some buyers. Um, you en enjoy that relationship, or enjoy that process of selling directly to uh, to buyers. Yeah, I left the dealer world in 1995, um, partly because of a of an unhappy experience but also a growing unease about it. Um, and it was getting close to the time when the internet started to open the world and the world could come to your website. And it did. Um, I started getting interest and inquiries and responses from people all around the world, which of course happens every day now to everybody but I 
really enjoy the fact that we now can be careful about what paintings go where. So that's, that's important to you. Where work ends up yeah, is important. It is, it is mm. oddly. Um, the first thing to understand about this is that although someone might buy a painting from you, you always think that it's yours. It's always the paintings are always mine. I don't mind. I don't care who's. Well, I do care. I, it doesn't worry me um, comparatively who is the caretaker of that painting because it's always mine. It's not theirs. They are just looking after it and hopefully enjoying it and for all the right reasons enjoying it. But essentially they're mine hmm. and they will never be anyone else's. But then I do, and Fee is involved in this too, we do try hard to make sure that, that a finished painting is offered to someone that we think is right for it, according to what they've told us about what they've loved in the past and what they what they are like as people and how much we've got to know them. And we do get to know our clients a lot. And that's one of the extra pleasures, really. Um, and it's the analogy is easy. It's sort of like adopting out a child. You, you want your babies to go to a loving home and an appreciative home and not be sold on to the next family. Um, so we do take care about that. Mm. And controlling that client list ourselves is, is a nice mechanism for, for being able to decide what gets offered to whom. It doesn't mean that they're going to accept it. It may be that it's not right for them, but but someone else behind them has got their hands up and you know about it because they've been an email touch and, and come to visit or whatever, which mm. is what we like. Um, so it, it keeps it personal and it also means that I feel as if I haven't lost them. I can go and visit them, for example, or you might go and pat a, pat a child on the head. Um, it, you know, that... That lovely story about Augustus John always in London walking down the street always used to be very kind and pat every child on on its head in case it was one of his. <laughs> I'm not um, familiar with that, but <laughs> and although happily you know what your paintings are. Yeah, well, I've got I've signed them, but yeah. I, we, we know where they all are. But it, involvement with your supporters is a really lovely thing. Hmm. Um, if you give a work to a dealer, you lose that control. Mm. And uh, you lose a number of other things too, in my view. But um, we keep it personal and close, and that pleases me a great deal. I think it's an incredibly fortunate situation to be in. Final question. So with uh, putting aside any limitations of, uh, you know, budget, scale of work, whether it's owned in a public institution or anything, um, if you could live with any, any artist or any work, what would, uh, what would that be or who would that be? I, w I flew to Sydney to see that very painting that I would steal if I could get away with it. Um, there are lots of them, believe me, that I would steal if I could get away with them. But top of the list 
would be Vermeer's woman in blue reading a love letter. And why? It's a tiny moment from an ordinary day painted on a very modest scale, unlike today where gigantism rules. It's unbelievably serene and beautiful. And you can't help but wonder so much about it. Who is she? Is she pregnant or not? What does the letter say? Is she happy about it or is it bad news? The painting is loaded with very subtle, prodding, suggestive possibilities. And it's painted in a way in which the paint is with all, all the best of the Vermeers, and there are not many that are, that are great, but there would be six or eight. The paint doesn't get in the way of the seeing. And it's just the subtlety and the artistry um, is just utterly breathtakingly beautiful to me. And I've got a copy of it on my studio wall right there. Ah, as, as immediate inspiration. It's been with me all my life. And when it was on show in the Art Gallery of New South Wales three or four years ago, you were allowed to get right up close to it. You didn't have some machine gun toting security guard <laughs> threatening your life. Um, you know, you could just about put your nose against it and see exactly what Vermeer himself had left with his last gesture of his hand. And I just love the, the subtle, modest beauty of it. I hope you've enjoyed hearing Graham talk about his practice. It was certainly a huge privilege for me to visit him in his home and studio. Graham chooses to not have dealer representation, but you can contact him via his website, grahamsydney.co.nz. Please join me for episode four of The Good Oil. Thanks for listening. Kakite anō.